Happy Mother's Day, moms. We are thankful for you. We know that uh, oftentimes a thankless job, if there's one thing that we all have in common in this church, is that we all have a mom. And we're all commanded to honor mom. And so moms, we hope that you feel loved and honored today um, by us and know that we appreciate you, all that you do that's oftentimes not noticed. And uh, we just want to be able to say that to you today. And then also, so many of you, I know that Mother's Day is a tough day. Maybe you've lost a mom or you've got a strained relationship with mom or you've desired to be a mom and God's not answered that fulfillment yet or that desire yet. And uh, I just want to say to you, if you're here today, uh, thanks for being so brave and courageous, uh, knowing that we would say something about moms. And uh, we're glad for each and every one of you that are here. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue in the series we've been doing through the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. Last week we were in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This week we're going to start in verse 8. And if you're a guest with us today, I want you to know that we appreciate you being here. And we just ask you to fill out a little card that's in your worship program. And if you fill that out and take it out to the first-time guest kiosk, uh, we've got a little gift for you. That's the kiosk that's on the outside of the doors as you're walking out to the parking lot before you rush off to go buy your mom lunch. Hint. And uh, want to do that, make sure you slide over to that first-time guest kiosk. And I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump into the scriptures this morning. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I just uh, come into your presence. I pray and lift up these moms to you. And uh, I pray for the work that they do and the job that they perform. We know that we see some mothers and various women in Scripture have incredible impact in the lives of many people. And uh, we know that our moms have impacted us um, in lots of different ways. I'm sure there are pains and difficulties from things in our relationship with moms. And I know that you can redeem that and you can heal that. And I know there are situations where uh, mom was the, the greatest picture of Jesus' love that some of us have ever seen. And we thank you for that. And I pray for the moms that are currently... Uh, raising children, uh, that you give them strength and encouragement, and when things seem so uh, difficult or like they're so insignificant, you'd show them the significance of what they're doing, and I pray for those who have grown children, uh, that you continue to, to guide them and direct them in that stage of motherhood, and for each one of us in our relationships with our moms, that we'd honor mom today, and I pray, God, for your son Jesus Christ to be glorified, lifted up through the things that we say. I pray that people would be drawn to him today. I pray for those that don't have a relationship with you today would be a day where they would step into a relationship with you. And I pray for those of us who do, that are living by faith, you'd encourage us. And those of us who are not, you'd prod us and probe us and move us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to start with a very serious question this morning. And, uh, and I'm being serious when I say that. I understand you could take that either way, wondering what I'm going to say next. But here it is. What if today was your last? Not your last day at work, not your last day at school. What if it was your last day on earth? What if you knew you only had 24 hours left to live? Would you do anything different? No one left. So I'm glad that you'd come to church. Would you continue to go on with your normal daily routine, whatever you have, yard work and lunch with mom or whatever it is that you're going to do today? Would you do some things maybe on your bucket list? Uh, maybe you'd call somebody. Maybe you'd reconcile a relationship. Perhaps you'd take a step of faith that you'd been waiting to take someday that you'd take. What if you knew today was your last day to live? And as I was studying the passage of scripture we're going to look at today, I was looking at the life of this man, Stephen, and it dawned on me that it's the last day of his life. It's the last 24 hours that he's going to be here on earth. And so then I got that question, what if I knew it was the last 24 hours of my life? And then I was reminded that I preached a message one time when I was in college uh, to our, our college campus that I was able to speak to on, on Fridays. And we came together and I asked that exact question, what if today was your last day to live? What if you knew you only had 24 hours to live? And ironically, in my situation, within 24 hours of preaching that sermon, I'd be faced with the reality that we're all mortal, the reality of our mortality, just the fact that we don't know how long we have. Because within 24 hours of, of preaching that message, my dad went into work, and my dad had recently trusted Christ as a Savior, was a very carefree kind of guy, and when he went into work that day, he collapsed in a major heart situation, was care-flighted to a university hospital, 
And within 24 hours of preaching that message, I would be faced with the fact that none of us really know how long we have. And today I just want to ask you this question. What if today was your last day? How would you live it? And we're going to look at this guy, Stephen, and he's living the last 24 hours of his life. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 8, and whether it's a, an app, an iPad, whatever you use to find the scriptures, if you turn there right now, we'll see it starts off with now Stephen. And Stephen's a guy that we were introduced to last week. Remember last week, there was a crisis in the church. The Grecian widows weren't being fed, and so they were upset, and unity was threatened. And so then the apostles took leadership, that means taking ownership and initiative out of the care for others for the advancement of the gospel, and we saw them take leadership, and they picked Stephen. That's one of the things they did. They didn't do everything themselves. They selected a guy who could serve in his sweet spot and serve from overflowing, and we saw these qualifications of Stephen. He was full of faith, full of wisdom, full of, strength, or full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit, um, or the other ones, uh, full of power, full of grace, and he was picked as a guy that would serve these people. And then we look at him here in this passage of scripture, and it's the last day of his life. But here's the deal with Stephen. He doesn't know it's the last day of his life. He didn't wake up that morning and God said, all right, buddy, make this one count. He's just like you and me. He's living not realizing how much time he has. But it looks like that Stephen's the kind of guy that makes every day count. Because Stephen's the kind of guy who lives his life by faith. And what we're going to see as we glimpse into the last day of his life is that's exactly what he's doing. Look at what happens in verse 8. Verses 1 through 7, we see he's selected to feed widows, but that's not all he does. He says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. All right, that sounds great. And so he's healing people. The same description we see of Jesus earlier in this book, and we see through the Gospels. But then look at verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, uh, these were Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Silica and Asia. And so they're from all these different places, but one synagogue. And it says, these men began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. The same type of thing they did to Jesus. Verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. We've met those guys before. They produced false witnesses who testified, the fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so as they look at Stephen, they get this picture of a godly man. They see a guy who's doing wonders, miraculous signs. He's feeding widows. Interesting, though, they oppose him. Have you ever had someone oppose you before? And, and even closer to the text, parallel, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been trying to do something for someone else's benefit and they oppose you? And since today's Mother's Day, I'll ask you moms specifically. Moms, have you ever tried to help someone for their benefit and they oppose you? See, now you're identifying. I, I hear the responses. They resist you. They fight against you. They, whatever word you want to use, but they oppose you. I asked some moms that question this week. I just, you know, figured I'd take a handful of people and just kind of ask, you know, mom, do you ever feel like your kids oppose you? And one mom responded with, every day? Are you talking about like every day? Do I feel that way? Another mom said, no, being totally sarcastic. But you think about motherhood. You want what's best for someone, and they fight you on it. I just asked my, my wife. One of our examples was when she goes to change a diaper. Do you want to just lay there in your mess? Like, is that, we'll just wait until you get old enough for you to change your own diaper and then see how that works out. They don't want to be messy, but they don't want you to change them. 
and they fight you and they resist you and you're trying to do what's best for them. Or if you've ever tried to put a, a little kid in a car seat, uh, have you ever had that and they get the stiff back syndrome? You know, no, you know, they start fighting out of the thing and, excuse me, I just want your best interest and your personal safety. Sorry so much for trying to buckle you in. <laughs> you think about how you're trying to do what's best for these kids. You try to feed them a balanced diet of vegetables, they steal chocolate out of the pantry. Right? Maybe I'm just venting my own frustrations, perhaps. Some of you, you know what this is like. You try to give them medicine. I just want your healing. They won't take the medicine. And they get older. You say, don't ride your bike down the middle of the street. Where do they ride their bikes? You look out the window a little while later. They're riding down the middle of the street. They become teenagers. And you just want them to make good decisions. And you want them to be godly kids. And they don't want to appear too churchy. And they want to be cool. And so they resist you. And it continues on. And so if you know what that's like as a, a mom, then let me tell you something, moms. That's one way that you're like God. Because God knows exactly what that's like. He has these children that he creates. And think about it back in the beginning. There was no opposition in the beginning. There was no fighting. There was no resisting. God created man and woman living in perfect harmony with him and with one another. There was no opposition with each other. There was no opposition with God. And we're living in perfect peace and in perfect harmony. And what happens is we choose to rebel. Humanity, human, the human race, chooses to rebel against God. Essentially what we say to God is, you're a liar. You say that you know the best way. I know a better way. You're holding out on me. And what we did is we declared war with God. And every person since has done the same thing as we choose sin. And we shake our fist at God and we start to be at battle with God. But you know what happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ? You're surrendering. You're saying, God, you win. You're waving the white flag. And you bow your knee to Jesus Christ. And you say you're going to follow him. You do that by faith. And then it leads to a life of faith. But here's the bad news. When you bow your knee to Jesus... That doesn't mean that everyone else in the world does. And there are a lot of people that are out there that are at war with God. Some of them in church, some of them teach Sunday school classes, some of them, you would never guess that, but they haven't surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, and they don't live a life by faith. And so when they see you living a life by faith, you represent God to them, and so then they will oppose you. See, when you live a life of faith, opposition is inevitable. And that's our main point today, that opposition to a life of faith is inevitable. When you decide that you're going to walk in a relationship with God where you're trusting him with everything that you are, with everything that you have, with your talents, with your time, with your money, with your resources, your, your mind, your strength, your soul, all of that, then you will face opposition. See, the scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's not by being moral enough, it's not believing the right philosophies, it's not having the right mental thoughts, it's not signing some statement that says what you're going to do, do. It's without living by faith, it's impossible to please God. There's no other way. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ is, are we living by faith? Now, did you make a decision one time by faith? Are you living by faith today? Not just do you believe something, but do you walk by faith? My wife and I are talking about that this week. We said we want to live on the edge of faith. What does it look like for us to trust God with everything we are, with everything we have? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does it look like for you to take steps of faith where you're trusting God to come through, where he has to do something because you can't do it on your own talents, you can't do it in your own power, you can't manipulate circumstances. You're trusting him. That's walking by faith. It's the very thing that Stephen's doing in this passage. We see Stephen described as a man of faith. Back in verse 5 from last week's passage, when it talks about who was selected, Look at the description of Stephen. It says, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. 
And in verse 8 in our passage today, we see him doing something that requires faith. And it says that he's full of power and full of grace. He's been so radically transformed by God's grace that he's a gracious man. You see God's power, not just his talents, not just his abilities, God's power at work in and through this guy as he lives by faith. And that idea of faith and power come together, it goes back to the very mission that Jesus Christ gives them. You can read it in Luke chapter 24, verses 47 through 49, but in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it's stated very simply. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says that you will be my witnesses. He's not just talking to the 11. Stephen's not one of the apostles. He's talking to all of his followers. It's the very thing that Stephen's doing in this passage. He says, you're going to be my witnesses, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. What's Stephen full of? Full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. And then what are you going to do? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you're going to share the gospel of faith. And that's going to require faith. Do you ever think about that? That it actually requires faith to share the gospel? Some of you, I shared with you last week that we do every year at our church a renewable church membership. And uh, I shared with you some stats a couple weeks ago that were really pathetic for the American church. And then I got, I got the stats about us later. And that um, 80% of our members so they had shared Jesus Christ with someone, how you could have a relationship with Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, within the last six months. And that's incredible. I mean, we want it to be 100%, but that's great in comparison to the American church as a whole. This week I was given another stat. 97% of our members have at least one person that they're praying for by name that will come to Jesus Christ as their Savior in the next year. 97%. That's Like I said, we want it to be 100%, but 97%. At some point, those other people are going to have to step up by faith and actually share Jesus with someone. That's hard, isn't it? Think about all the fears that can be there. You don't know what you're going to say. What if they ask a question you don't know the answer to? What if they reject you? There's fear of being rejection, fear of what they'll think of you, fear of the information, fear of all kinds of fear. Do you know what happens that overcomes that? Faith. It's trusting God that he'll give you the words. It's trusting God that he handles the results. It's trusting God that if you step out and do what he's commanded you to do, he'll take care of all that stuff. You don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know what's going to happen. That's what Stephen's doing in our passage today. In verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and full of power, he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. We've seen that description one time before of someone in the book of Acts. It's when Peter was preaching the day of Pentecost, and he's talking about Jesus Christ that they crucified. They did the same type of thing that they did to Stephen here, where they falsely accused him because they couldn't defeat him in just an argument. And so they come up with a, they stir up the people, get them before the Sanhedrin, same group of people. And look at how he's described in Acts chapter 2, and verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. No one denies what's happening here in this situation, even when they bring false accusations. No one ever denied that Jesus Christ did miracles. No one ever denies here that Stephen does these miracles, these signs, these wonders. And so think about this guy Stephen that we have. Verses 1 through 7, we learn that he's a guy who feeds widows. And then here we see these uh, signs and wonders similar to that of Jesus Christ. We aren't given the details of every healing that happens here. We aren't given the details of every sign that takes place, what his teaching was like exactly. But because it's so parallel with Jesus, we imagine he probably healed blind eyes. He probably helped people walk that weren't able to walk. Probably helped people hear that previously were unable to hear. And then look at verse 9, the first two words. It's very interesting. Opposition arose. Who gets mad at that? I mean, what did someone say to this guy? You're feeding widows. Stop. That's my mom. Don't feed her. It's Mother's Day. I'm supposed to buy her lunch. You know. How do you get mad at this guy? Who gets mad at someone for feeding widows? Who gets mad at somebody for healing blind eyes? You know, I couldn't see. Now I can see. And I don't like what I see. You know, why'd you heal me? 
They're upset. He's benefiting them. Do you, do you know why they're upset with him? It's not because of anything he's doing. It's not because he's healing people. It's not because he's feeding people. It's not because people are able to walk. They weren't able to walk. It's because of what he represents. He's a man who's full of grace, full of power, full of faith, full of the Spirit. It's because he represents God to them. And do you realize when you walk by faith what you represent to people? God, who they're at war with. And so opposition arose because opposition is inevitable. And you, by nature, the way you live your life, when you live by faith, and it's not, this isn't the goal. This isn't what you set out to do. Okay? This is what happens. Because you set out to live by faith and you're going to walk with God, the very nature of the life you live causes conflict with people who don't live that kind of life. And you might not realize it sometimes, but your very pursuit of holiness isn't so you can make other people feel bad about their sin, but your very desire to be like Jesus, to pursue holiness, is convicting to those who are in their sin and are okay with their sin. And so it might just be that they don't want to be around you. That might be the simple opposition that you face. It might be abrasive. It might be offensive. It might be aggressive. But your holiness is an affront to them. Your, very, your radical generosity is a confrontation to the materialistic culture that we live in. The fact that you want to walk by faith and trust Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, do you realize how counter that is to everything else? And I'm talking about people you'll find in churches where they are the center of their lives. They determine, they are their ultimate authority. I know the scripture says this, but I, that's what they'll say. They're their authority. I know that you know, God, this might not be what God wants, but I'm going to do this. They determine the steps. They're their own God. And so when you live by faith, you naturally are living in confrontation with those people. But here's a false idea sometimes we get when we live by faith, that there would be no opposition, that everything would go smoothly. That this, this was just a unique situation for Stephen here, that he lives by faith and then people oppose him. But oftentimes the idea behind that is this, that as long as we do what you want us to do, God, everything should go, and we would say good or well, everything should go that way. And what we mean by that is everything should be easy, smooth, comfortable. That's how we define the term good. The idea of that is this, as long as I obey you, then you should, and we fill in the blank with our plan, with our ideas, with our thoughts of what should happen in the situation. And you've seen it before. So you have somebody that's walking by faith, serving God, they might love Jesus, and then something bad happens, and then the response oftentimes is this, why is it I'm doing what you want me to do, and then you do this? The idea is that you owe me something, God. As long as I do these things, you should and we fill in the blank with our thing that we think should happen there. Let me just say something. That's just wrong. It's not true. And the idea is that we think God owes us something. Let me say this very bluntly, as blunt as I can. God doesn't owe us anything. Let's put this in perspective how counter the gospel that is. We have a debt we can't pay. It's our sin against him. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's the situation we're in. We couldn't fix our problem. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth to die on the cross for your sins, for my sins, to pay your debt, to pay my debt. He died as a ransom for many. He's already given us far beyond anything he could ever possibly owe us. We're living on grace. So our service, after we place our faith in Jesus, doesn't indebt him to us because of what we do. We're living on grace. And if you think that living a life of faith means everything will be easy, that's just not true. Paul tells one of his disciples, Timothy, He's speaking into his life, and he's going to pastor a bunch of people, Timothy is. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he says this, in fact, everyone, everyone, not just you, Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life, he's preparing them for ministry in Christ Jesus, 
will be persecuted. This isn't a situation just for Stephen here in this situation. Look at Scripture. All throughout Scripture, you see, look at Hebrews chapter 11. If you just want to look at and grab some guys, maybe you don't know the whole Bible, but you want to grab some stories, Hebrews chapter 11. Read that and see how many of those people faced opposition. Or you can survey the Old Testament to the New Testament. How many people that lived by faith faced opposition? Moses. Moses is the example of leadership, right? And here's Moses. Does he face opposition? He stands before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, okay. Nope. And you read the whole story. You know what happens? It gets ugly. It gets bloody. It gets messy. And a lot of people die. But was God in it? Yep, he was there the whole time. And Moses was walking by faith. Yep. But he faced opposition. Look at other people. You go to Joseph. Joseph's a guy in the book of Genesis. And you see what happens in his life. And if you just read the beginning, you know, he's his dad's favorite son, and you read the end of the story, and he's second in command, and in this place where there's a great famine, and they're the ones that have all the food. And seems great, right? But in the middle of that, what happens is he chooses to live by faith. When his boss's wife is trying to seduce him, he says, no, that's not mine. I'm not going to take that. I know, that God's, I know how God wants us to work out. He runs. He does what's right. He lives by faith. It wasn't a step of faith. It was a sprint of faith. And he sprints out of the room. What happens? He gets falsely accused, thrown in jail. So he lives by faith, and that's what happens? Yeah, God was working a plan behind the scenes. He couldn't see in every circumstance what God was doing. But he walks by faith and he trusts. Look at Daniel. Daniel lives by faith. He gets thrown in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They end up in a fiery furnace. You look at the book of Hebrews. If you read that Hebrews chapter 11 passage, do you know how it ends? Verse 36 says this. Some face jeers. These are all about people who live by faith. Some face jeers and flogging. We've talked about flogging the last couple of weeks. While still others were chained and put in prison. Jeremiah would be an example, one of God's greatest prophets. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. That wasn't designer clothing then, in case you're wondering. Destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. That's how they were treated. Verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. By faith, opposition is inevitable. You will face opposition. So the question is, will you live by faith? Well, see, who would want to do that? Who wants opposition? Well, some of us, we value comfort more than we value faith. We value safety more than we value faith. We value what other people think of us more than we value faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. There is no other life like the life of faith. It's the very life that you're being called to. And the one that you follow, Jesus Christ, they murdered him. And we get this idea that if we follow him, everything's going to go smooth, everything's going to be easy, everything's going to be comfortable. You know what Jesus says? They hated me, they'll hate you. You know what else he says? Luke chapter 6, he says a warning. Woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. Whoa, there's something wrong. For that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. You look at all the prophets, they killed them. But they all love the false prophets. Why do you love a false prophet? It tells you what you want. Tells you what you want to hear. Why? Ultimately, he's manipulating you, using you to get what he wants, whether that's position, whether that's affirmation. You see the false prophets do it with the kings in the Old Testament. You see false prophets do it to fleece the flock, try and get money out of them. You see, you see false prophets do this kind of stuff all the time. It's always self-centered. It's not for you, but they tell you what you want to hear. And in the end days, we know there'll be plenty that will do these things. Itching ears will follow around them and gather large crowds of people. Even believers could possibly be deceived. Woe to you if you're one of those people. So you think about the people that come to you for counsel. You think about the way that you live your life. Is it all for faith? 
When we live by faith, opposition is inevitable. And that's how Stephen's living in this passage, a man full of faith. Verse nine says that opposition arose against him. And then you notice who these people are. Remember last week, it was the Grecian Jews, Greek people, they're having a problem. And so in order to pick people that were serving in their sweet spot, the apostles pick seven Greek men. Stephen's one of the Greek men. Now look at who these synagogues are. They're of the freedmen. These are people that were in captivity, have been set free. Jews of not Jerusalem. Cyrene, Alexandria, as well as the province of Silica and Asia, these are Greek-speaking Jews. And so you try and put yourself in Stephen's situation here. And hometown synagogue, maybe? Perhaps family members? Certainly the people that he's serving, that he's loving. These are his people. And some of you, you know, your greatest pain has come from people that are close to you. Isn't that, isn't that the worst? I had a person, a woman, share with me this week, and she told me I could share a story anytime. She told me that her dad was her hero. Her dad's the one who told her about Jesus. Her dad's the one who made her feel safe. Her dad caused some of the greatest pain in her life when he sexually abused her. And some of you, your greatest pain comes from your mom, maybe? Today's a tough day. From a sibling, from a spouse, from one of your children who's gone off and done their own thing. And so you can only imagine the pain that Stephen's feeling here. He's being opposed. The very people he's serving, the very people he's trying to lay his life down so that they can know Christ are the ones that are upset with him. He was so like Jesus. So these men began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. It's again Jesus fulfilling what he said to the disciples. It also applies to all of his disciples that will come. Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 21, that I'm going to give you the words. It was God speaking through Stephen by his power. They couldn't defeat him in a regular argument, so then look at verse 11. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And we can easily read past that, um, and because in our culture, not to God necessarily, but in our culture, this crime here of blasphemy um, is not as scandalous anymore. Uh, for us, uh, you know, people put YouTube videos out, that blasphemy God. And uh, they'll they've kind of put it out there just to prove they don't, as if God didn't know they didn't believe. They're proving they don't believe in God and it goes viral and all kinds of people watch it and okay, whatever, and you move on and do the next thing. People would be frantic over this crime then. It'd be like, some of you have seen the news this week and what happened in Cleveland. Uh, there's girls that were kept in that house for 10 years and, and then you see the guy who did it and there's outrage against this man who did these horrific crimes that happens all over the place all the time now, by the way. We just found a case they did an interview with the guy who, who rescued those girls out of the house. He said, I'm a Christian. And then later in the interview, he said, longer interview with Anderson Cooper, he ended up saying, um, if I had known this guy was doing this and he'd have been home, we'd be having a different interview. And then he kind of looks at Anderson like, you get me? You know what I'm saying? I'd have killed that guy. That's what he was saying. And you know what? Most people are like, that's right. And that's what I would have done. Outrage, anger. That's how these people feel about blasphemy. They want to destroy Stephen at this moment. And so you look at what it says next. So they stirred up the people. It would have been easy when they accused him of this crime. And the elders and the teachers of the law, they seized Stephen. The word there is they forcefully, this was not, hey, we'd like to read you your rights. They took him by force. It was a violent situation. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. We've met the Sanhedrin before. Caiaphas, Annas, same guy that Jesus stood on trial before when he was falsely accused. Same people that had just decided to beat, because they were being gracious, decided to beat the apostles with the flogging rather than kill them. That's who we have here, the 71 men, the most powerful men in the Jewish world. 
and they produce false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law, that's Moses. If we've heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And so the question is, and we're going to look at it next week, some of what Stephen says in reply to this, did Stephen really say these things? Because some commentators will say, well, he probably actually said some of this stuff. They're just twisting it and misrepresenting it. It's not so much they're making it up. And we don't know exactly what Stephen said, but we know some of the things that Jesus said. One of the things he was accused of is some of this stuff. Jesus says, and you can read it on your own study, John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Religious people get all uptight. Oh, we did, it took 46 years. You know how many campaigns that was? You know, they were upset about this thing. It took 46 years to build this temple. And then Jesus later says in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, he says, I'm talking about my body. John tells us that Jesus was talking about his body. And so why did Jesus refer to himself as the temple? I think that if he was just prophesying about his resurrection, if he was just saying, you know, I shared on this temple, my body, and in three days I'll raise it from the dead, John Piper asked a great question. Why does he call his body this temple, knowing that they're going to think this thing? And the answer is this. Because when Jesus' body was destroyed, when he was broken, when he died, the temple was destroyed, the temple died. No more need for sacrifices. Changes, you're blessing Moses. Not the moral law, not honor your mother, not don't murder, not that stuff, but the ceremonial law. You don't have to bring a goat anymore. The blood's been shed on the cross. You don't have to bring a lamb. You don't have to bring a sacrifice. There's no competition. You've got doves, I've got a little goat. There's none of that stuff anymore. It's all one sacrifice, the sacrifice of all sins. Jesus Christ, when he paid on the cross, your debt, my debt. That's what Stephen's preaching. They've twisted it. Because you know what this is? He's preaching faith. It's no longer about what you do. It's no longer about these sacrifices you bring. It's no longer, now it's about your faith just in Jesus Christ. And Stephen's living a life of faith and they don't like it. Why? Why don't they like faith? Same reason you don't like faith. Same reason I don't like faith. Because it challenges the status quo. What most of us want to do, and, and we're moral people and we're nice people and we're church-going people and, and we honor the loved ones and, and we don't murder anybody and we don't steal and, and we don't blaspheme, blaspheme God and we don't, we don't do these things and so we think we're good, but we don't want to live by faith because faith challenges the status quo. Always has, always will. Go through that Hebrews 11 passage. Start looking at all those people. Look at, look at guys like Noah. You want to live according to your plan and your wisdom? Build a boat. It's not raining. Build a boat. All right, I'm going to trust. I'm going to walk by faith. You go to Abraham. Abraham, I want you to move, pick up your family, and go to another place. Okay, where? I'll tell you when you get there. It doesn't work according to my plan, according to my wisdom. I'm going to make you a father of nations, but I'm old, and my wife's old, and we can't have kids. Trust me. And he has a child. Give me your child. That doesn't work according to my plan, and my, you said a whole nation. Do you know what it says about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11? There had never been a resurrection before. It says that Abraham believed that if he needed to, if God needed to, he'd raise his son from the dead. He just thought, I'm going to obey. I'm going to trust. Faith. Look at Moses. You know what it says about Moses? Moses does something nobody wants to do. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, says that, that he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Moses is living in a palace. All those Hebrews are being beaten and we're like, yeah, we, of course he identifies with people. No, he was raised as a prince. He's got the education. He's got the resources. And he chooses instead to obey God and to forsake those things. Who does that? That doesn't make sense. If we're going to live according to our wisdom, according to our plan. But see, oftentimes it's because of that. Because we're so reliant. Now we're moral. We vote right, whatever that means. And we do the nice things. And we're kind to our neighbors and all those kinds of things. But faith? Live by faith? 
What in your life requires faith? And so oftentimes we wouldn't do something by faith because we think of all the reasons why we can't. We don't have the resources, we don't have the time, we don't have the money. If you knew what I did in the past, what about I'm not that kind of person? I could never. I read a great quote by Hudson Taylor I want to challenge you with this week. Hudson Taylor says this, many Christians estimate difficulty in light of their own resources and thus attempt very little and always fail. What do you attempt for God? It's all giants. He's talking about giants of the faith. All giants have been weak men and women who did great things for God because they reckoned on his power and his presence to be with them. What do we see with Stephen? He's a man who's full of power, God's power. All those guys I mentioned to you from Hebrews chapter 11, you can read the Bible on your own if you think I'm making this stuff up. Look at their lives when they're walking by faith and look at their lives when they do things in their own wisdom according to their own plan. Noah? Noah, by faith, is a righteous man. See when he lives on his own. He is a naked drunk. Read the story if you think I'm making it up. Moses? Moses is, leads a nation, right? Moses can't speak publicly. Moses is a murderer. Moses is living his life running in fear when God calls him. And then he stands up to the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, by faith. You look at Abraham. Abraham is a liar, an adulterer, an idol worshiper. But he becomes the father of a nation, the father of our faith, the father of many nations, by faith. It's by faith when it's God's power and God's resources. And that's what Stephen does. And let me tell you something. God wants you to live that way because without faith, it's impossible to please God. What if God was calling you to take a step of faith today? Would you do it? I had a conversation, just a, a brief conversation with a young man at our church a couple weeks ago. Um, preached a message, and we're just between services, real quick talk, and he was kind of shaken, and he was, felt like there was more, something that he was supposed to do. He didn't know what it was, and, and we started to talk about these things, and he said, I don't know. If I'm supposed to, my, my wife and I are just supposed to move and go on the mission field? And then he, and I just let him talk, and he's talking. I said, but I'm around all these non-believers here, and maybe God has me here, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And he says, and I want those people to come to Christ. And I, and I desire to share, share Jesus with them. And then he said this statement to me, and this is the one that struck me, and he said, someday. And he said, and Scott, it's always someday. It's never today. Why isn't it ever today? God wants you to take a step of faith today. He wants you to live by faith, not just someday, today. What if you didn't know this was your last day? Would you live the same way today that you're currently living? Or would you take that step of faith? Would you trust Christ as your Savior, for those of you who've been resisting? Would you step out and maybe go to the mission field? Or maybe share your faith with your neighbor or your mom? Or make a phone call? Or what would you do? It's not always someday. It's today he calls us to walk by faith. And Stephen's doing that very thing. And, and when you walk by faith, do you know what? people see in you God's presence Jesus Christ this is all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen they saw that his face was like the face of an angel so here's people that want to kill him they're pretty upset with Stephen because of these false accusations and notice in verse 15 it says all all who were sitting there all of the Sanhedrin Caiaphas Annas the very people who wanted Jesus dead who wanted to kill the apostles, now want to kill Stephen. But what do they see when they look at Stephen? This phrase, the face of an angel, it's a Hebrew idiom that talks about God's presence. They see God's presence in him. You know what they see? They see Jesus Christ. 
And if you look at this passage of scripture in, in chapter six, verse eight, all the way through when Stephen's martyred, what you see are multiple parallels to the life of Jesus Christ. What you see in Stephen is that he's walking with Jesus, he represents Jesus, and you see in the way that he interacts with people, the way that he forgives people, the way that he prays for people, the things that he's accused of, the fact that he's full of faith, full of grace, full of power, things that you see Jesus described as in the gospels. One commentator I read just laid out 10 parallels between Stephen and Jesus. And so what they see here when they look at Stephen is they look at Jesus. When you walk by faith, what people see in your life is Jesus Christ. You see in this passage, it says, all who were sitting in the, in the Sanhedrin looked intently. It's, Luke only uses that verb for looking intently, to look intensely like that, when he's trying to heighten the drama of a passage. He uses it in uh, Luke chapter 22 and verse 56, if you want to look this up. Uh, what happens is a young girl who's looking at Peter, and it says, and then she looked closely, looked intently at Peter, because she's trying to figure out, was he a guy that was with Jesus? In Acts chapter 1 and verse 10, uh, there's a situation where Jesus gives the mission, you know, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, and then he, he goes to heaven. You ever seen anything like that? Nope. Okay, neither had they. And so then they're looking intently, Acts 1 verse 10, they're looking intently into the clouds. Here you have the most powerful men in the world. They're looking intently at Stephen. They're drawn in by what they see, and what they see is God's presence in his life. And what do people see when they look at you? What do people see when they look at me? Do you know? See, I saw a commercial recently. It went viral. Maybe some of you have seen it. It was uh, Dove Soap put out a commercial. It's on all over YouTube right now, and people are putting it on Facebook and different places. And what happens is that Dove hired a forensic artist. And if you don't know what a forensic artist is, he worked for the FBI. Uh, they're the people, if you watch like, crime movies and stuff, they come in and do a sketch of the criminal. Even though they've never seen him, you give a description, and he draws, draws the person. Well, they hired a guy that's a forensic artist, and they put him in this big loft. And they put him in there's all kinds of windows, and I don't know if it's an apartment or a warehouse or what it was, this huge room. And uh, he's with his back facing the door, and then they brought these women in, and they had these women sit on the other side of a curtain. So they didn't see him, he didn't see them, and then he would ask them simple questions. Like, tell me about your hair. And she'd start to describe her hair, and he'd, they'd show to him, he'd start drawing. He'd say, what kind of eyes do you have? And they'd describe their, the woman would describe her eyes, and tell me about your chin. She, you know, my mom always told me I had a big jaw, and so... He'd start to draw the picture that she would describe and, and tell me about your smile. I've got these wrinkles. And she, they'd say these different things. I've got a lot of freckles. My forehead's large. My face is kind of round and fat. And these women would all describe themselves. They brought in several different women, three or four different women. And then when they were done, he said at the end of every interview, he, he said the same thing. Thank you very much. She would leave. He wouldn't look at her. She wouldn't see him. And then he brought in a second group of people. And the second group of people had met those women earlier that day. And they would sit on the other side of the curtain and he would start to ask them questions. Now, you met Chloe earlier today. Oh, yeah, I remember meeting Chloe. Tell me about her hair. And he'd start to draw her hair. And what kind of eyes? Her eyes, they lit up when she would talk, when she would speak. What's her chin? Her, she had a very thin chin. It was a beautiful chin. And, and they would describe the woman. It sounded very different than what the women said, though. The last part of the video, the forensic artist brings these women in and he's got two pictures. And he tells them, this is the one you described. This is the one that they described. What do you think? To a person, every one of them, the picture the other person described was far more beautiful than the one that they described to themselves. And the Dove commercial ends and says, you're more beautiful than you think, and that's kind of the message they give. There are a lot of lessons to be learned from that commercial. One of them is this. We're not very good at knowing how other people perceive us. And so I want to just ask you, when people look at you, what do they see? Do you know when God looks at you, what he sees? If, and this isn't everybody, but if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do you know that when he looks at you, he sees perfection? 
Like when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And so when he looks at you, he doesn't see that awful memory that you have, that thing that you did. He sees the miracles, the healings, the compassion, the love of Jesus Christ. And so when he looks at you, he doesn't see your greatest failure. He sees the victory of Jesus. When he looks at you, he doesn't see condemnation. It's a celebration. That's my child. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's what God looks at and sees in you. You say, all right, that's what God sees, but other people, they see like reality. They see the real thing. If you walk by faith, what they should see, not a perfect picture. We've all got issues and things, and that's one of the things in our weaknesses Christ has made known. That when they look at us, they should see Jesus Christ. The same thing. And how does that happen? Well, we talked about last week. How does Stephen, Stephen wasn't picked because of his talent, because of his potential. He was picked because he was a guy who was serving out of overflowing, full of the Spirit, full of power, full of faith, full of grace, full of wisdom. How does that happen? It happens in private before it's ever displayed in public. It's from being with God. What is seen here is the presence of God in the life of Stephen. And, and ironically, there's another place where we see the presence of God reflecting off of someone. It's Moses, the very guy he's being accused of being against. Isn't that interesting? That you go to the Old Testament and you read in Exodus chapter 34, there's a situation where Moses has been up on the mountain with God. And notice this observation of verse 29. When Moses came down from the Mount, Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware. Isn't that interesting? He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And what was reflecting off of him was the very glory of God. You can tell God's presence in his life because he had been in God's presence. The situation that had taken place, he had been up on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, had not, been, had not eaten, had not drank anything. God was his provision. God was his sustenance. That's where he was finding his satisfaction, was in the presence of God. Fuller context is this, uh, that what happened is he'd gone up on the mountain and the golden calf situation took place. These were dark days for the people. And, and God was upset and Moses was upset and God had poured out his wrath on the people and Moses was ticked off. And sometimes God's glory shines the brightest in the midst of darkness, doesn't it? And then what happens is that, that Moses goes back up on the mountain and God says to him, go into the promised land, I'm not going with you. And Moses says, I don't want to go and neither do these people. If you don't go, we're not going. God says, okay, I'll go. And Moses gets bold. And Moses says, then show me your glory. And Moses has seen God's glory. Saw it at the burning bush. Saw it at the Ten Commandments, the original, first time. He says, show me your glory again, God. And God says, you can't handle that. It'll destroy you. But I'll give you a glimpse. God's so gracious. You ever seen his glory? You can't handle all of it. God ever give you a glimpse of his glory? You're studying the scriptures? We talked about last week. And he just reveals who he is to you. Maybe that he's slow to anger, abounding in love. So gracious and merciful. Maybe that he's holy and different. And it calls you to him to be more like him. That he's radically generous in giving his son to us. And that he serves, that he loves, that he cares. And just overwhelms you. That's a glimpse of his glory. See, David, David's in dark days. He's fleeing in the desert in Psalm 63. And he says, I've beheld you in the sanctuary. I've seen your glory. He remembers it in those times. Maybe you've been in prayer and you're just sitting there and you're asking God to speak and he, he starts to reveal himself to you. You're giving a glimpse of your glory, of his glory. Or, or you step out by faith and you start to work and, and you do something for the Lord and somebody comes to Christ. That's a glimpse of his glory. 
or you see somebody you know, reconciled, or you see somebody step out of an addiction, or you see somebody decide they're going to take a step of obedience when they were going to live according to their plan and according to their wisdom, and that's a glimpse of God's glory. And he gives Moses a glimpse of his glory, and then he stays up on the mountain with him for 40 days, and he comes down, and, and you can see God's presence on him, and that's what we have here with Stephen. You could see God's presence. They saw the face of an angel in the midst of darkness, in the midst of difficulty. He's about to be killed. These people are saying false accusations against him. They want him to die. And he lives by faith. And what people see when they look at him then is Jesus Christ. What about you? What about me? And I asked you at the beginning, what if today was your last? I told you a little bit of the story uh, with my dad. My dad, I got care flighted to that hospital. Uh, terrible situation. He didn't die that day though. In fact, he lived for a little bit over a year after that, and then he did eventually die. And that next year, um, some great memories happened, some wonderful things. There were some struggles. And I don't know. The reality is I don't know how long I have to live. I don't know how long you have to live. I know that there will be opposition if you live by faith. But I know there's no better way to live than to live by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I live by faith is the very way you were designed to live. Back in the garden, the reason why... They stepped out and rebelled against God is because they decided to trust themselves, to trust the lie, to, rather than trust God, to live by faith. He wants to bring us back to where it was in the garden, perfect peace and perfect harmony with him, with others, and it happens by faith. And so will you live today like it's your last? Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful that you're gracious, grateful that you give us an opportunity, that even though we choose sin, that you give us then your son, redemption, reconciliation, an opportunity to be made right with you, to have peace with you. And I pray if there's any here today that need to have peace with you today, that they place their faith in your son, Jesus. And you can do that by acknowledging your sin. You know it's true. He knows it's true. Acknowledge your sin before God. And tell him you give up. You surrender. And you trust his son, Jesus, to be your savior. And Father, for those of us that are believers, that are followers of yours, but we value comfort or safety or easiness or some other thing, control, people's opinion, whatever all this stuff could be, more than living by faith, will you prod us and probe us and convict us and change us and move us and push us? For those who are living by faith and that are facing opposition, will you encourage? Will you bless? Will you strengthen? And Father God, we just thank you that you meet with us. We love you. And we ask you to be in this place to be with us the rest of this day in a sense where we sense your presence and other people sense your presence in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.